the first letter in the New Testament. We have the biographies of Jesus. You have um, the book of Acts, which is an historical book. It is uh, really a kind of continuation from uh, the, the book of Luke, as Luke wrote Luke. Okay, it's not complicated, right? Luke wrote Luke, and then Luke wrote Acts and continued on um, from the life of Christ to the point where Christ ascends to the right hand of God and continues on with the church and how um, the Holy Spirit leads the church into the world and how he brings many into uh, the church over those uh, first few decades. It's a wonderful um, opening of the New Testament. And then we get to the epistles or the letters, these letters that have been sent around. Um, Not only they go directly to a church, but then they are circulated so that the other churches would receive the blessings from these letters and Obviously, that's what you would want to happen because uh, they are good for the church up until this day and, and forevermore. These are the words of God. And so these are uh, things that we need as his people in order to know uh, God's will, to know uh, not only what he has done in the past, but what he does and what he continues to do. And so in Scripture, we find uh, not just truth, but the, the, the promises of God and the ways that God works. And specifically, as we get into Romans 12, we're really making a transition as we've gone for quite some time through the first 11 chapters of Romans. And when I say quite some time, it's really not been very long because most people who preach through books of the Bible preach much more slowly than I do. And they'll take their time and really like we're only dealing with two verses today. And that's pretty odd in Romans for us. Most of the time we're dealing with half of a chapter Uh, something like that. And so um, relatively, uh, we are going sort of fast through Romans, but hopefully by going at the rate of speed that we're going, you're able to keep that flow going of the the argument that Paul is making as he is displaying the gospel through uh, this amazing letter in great detail. It's, It's just beautiful the way that he writes, not just because he's organized it in some uh, amazing and systematic way, but because he organizes it as an argument and organizes it, it's uh, the, the word that we would use is a diatribe in which you are trying to determine what you think the next question of the audience will be. And then you continue on by answering that question for them. And there's a kind of wisdom in that kind of discussion. Um, and uh, I, I often, as I'm speaking with those who don't know Christ, Uh, spend more time dealing with the questions that I think that they will have in response rather than just blathering on about, you know, whatever detail I'm trying to give. It's helpful for us to hear Paul in his monologue give a dialogue, essentially, because he's asking those important questions that he knows people are asking. In the first eight chapters of Romans, uh, we really have the gospel on display. And then in 9 through 11, the question comes up, and through many questions, as you remember, uh, if you've been here through those weeks, that the, the questions come up about the Jews, about Israel. What is the future of Israel? What has happened to Israel? Is Israel cut off? Is Israel over with? You know, why has it happened the way that it's happened? So Paul gives um, uh, three chapters to that topic. It's not a hiccup in the middle. It is really kind of a centerpiece to the whole point of the argument as Paul displays the gospel, he must answer the question, what about the Jews? Because the promises came to the Jews. 
Jesus was not born as a white American guy who just kind of is a mix of a bunch of other things. If you go and look at my genealogical tree, you try to figure out who I really am. You know, what, what, what backgrounds do I come from and, and what nationalities or what races or what whatever. And you start to find out that I'm just this big hodgepodge of, I don't know. You know, when I married Molly, I wasn't trying to keep anything like in the blood flow of the stream of some particular people you know, other than awesome people. We were uniting awesomeness. Um, <clears throat> not really. But anyway, uh, you, you know what I'm saying? We, we weren't trying to continue the, 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 the great tradition of something. We were just a couple of young people going, hey, you know, let's find somebody who's uh, awesome to me, and then we'll move on and have some kids and do some stuff. But Paul had to answer this because there has never been a people more important than the Jews as they are the ones who've been given the promises of God. Paul calls them the, the oracles of God. They have the promises. They know what's to come. They know what God wants to do. They know that through them that you, God will bring Messiah. And so God has given them the promises through Abraham specifically that there would be this great blessing to all of the world through the Jews. He gave some temporary promises through the covenant to Moses. The Abrahamic covenant are the ones that, they're eternal promises. They're the promises that God keeps for everybody at all times. The, the covenant to Moses or the Mosaic covenant, when we go back and we think about uh, the law as given to Moses, do we go back and read the law and go, we need to keep all these laws? Because if I'm looking at you, I'm seeing a whole bunch of sinners. Because you cut the sides of your hair and there's beard stuff and washing stuff and cleanliness stuff and dirty stuff and sacrifices and all these things. Do we go back and look at those and say, we're to keep all of these? No, we say they are kept in Christ, right? They, they are kept, that they have been kept, that they are complete. He is that one final sacrifice. Now we talk about the temple. We don't talk about the, the temple, the building. We talk about us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all these things are, are fulfilled in Christ. Paul is displaying the gospel, is, is arguing for the gospel, and then is making clear the position, the place of the Jews in the gospel in that they were given all of these things, they rejected Christ, and so now they are cut off. Not all of Israel was Israel in the first place, if you were born into the family, it doesn't mean you got all the benefits of the family. You had to stay as a part of the family. You had to be spiritually in the family. It is not the physical circumcision, right, ouch, that gets you in the family. It is the spiritual circumcision. And so this is what Paul makes clear over and over and over again. So that we today would not just go, okay, this is all great history, but that we would know today it is the same for us. That all of those external things, no matter whose family you were born into and, and what you got and how much Bible you read and, all, and what church you attend and when you became a member and whether or not your name is in gold on your Bible, none of those things are the things by which you are measured spiritually. As a matter of fact, it is those who hold those so dear often that are the most in danger. Isn't it the Pharisees who are in the most danger, right? The, the most religious because they didn't have the heart they didn't have the heart of god's word which we know is the gospel the great picture of that is 
when Jesus gives, and of course there's many pictures of this, he talks about whitewashed tombs and all, you know, the things on the inside are dead, but you're whitewashing the outside to try to make it look good and clean. But it's dead on the inside. The, the idea of the cup, right? You, you guys, the, the, the cup is filthy, and you're washing the outside of the cup. If you wash the inside, the outside's clean as well. How many of you take the, you know, the glass that you drank out of and you spend all your time scrubbing the outside of the glass in the sink? You guys are all going, what do you mean? We have dishwashers, right? <laughs> uh, which way do you turn the dishes in the dishwasher? I mean, it's the same thing, right? We, we, we need to wash the inside and then the outside will be clean as well. And so that is, we're always in that place of danger. And Paul makes very clear as he displays the gospel and shows the position of the Jews that not only were they in danger, but they have received exactly what they deserve, which is now the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And we could go back and try to rehash all of the the specific details in that. But the, the, the point of whatever happens in the future for the Jews, for the Gentiles, for everybody in the world, Uh, whatever happens in the future for everyone is the same. Either we are circumcised in our heart, either our hearts of stone become hearts of flesh, or we are cut off. For everybody. We can try to talk about what God's promises the Jews and some of the confusion or some of the, the difficulty and the differences of opinion on some of those matters. The bottom line is this. It is those who repent and believe in Christ who are saved. It is those who trust the name of Jesus alone who are saved. It is those who are saved by grace through faith alone who are saved. And there is no one else who is saved. There is no other measurement stick. There is no other scale in which we try to balance it, you know, or tip the balance in our favor. We, that there are no scales. There's one scale. Jesus is it, and he weighs heavy and heavier than anything else. No matter what our sin, we can be saved if we trust in Christ. It's really the message of Romans. And then we come to Romans chapter 12, in which Paul begins now to make this transition as he displays grace through this this amazing set of arguments and theological explanations. Now he says, be shaped by grace. Here's how you now live by grace. And so the words that were very theological and and deep, so deep that Paul said, we can't search out the ways of God. He, He talks about how he searches them out and how he explains as much detail as he can give. And yet we lose track in the snow of where God has gone. We just can't possibly follow how deeply he is at work in the world to bring salvation to people, how he has worked through the Jews, and then now, as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, how the gospel has come here, and that any of us have responded to it is just amazing, and we should worship God, we should have this awe of God, because of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And then Paul says, okay, now, we, we worship because of what he has done of what that means, of what it means to be justified, of what it means that we are people who are, are, are saved, of what it means that we have no more condemnation if we are in Christ, of what it means that we're all in sin, but that Christ has made that way for those who have 
faith. Now Paul gets practical. And I just want you to be careful. Because Paul does this in, in all of his letters where he goes and does some theological things and, and gives some depth and then he turns the practical. And a lot of the time I know Christians like to go, I just want to race straight to chapter 12. Because it's, it's super practical. It's just, it, it's really, it feels like more real. You read chapter 11 about the Jews and you're going, this ain't me, right? This is not me. And, and then you go to 12 and you go, oh, exactly. That's what I want. This is what we need to have. But if you try to build on 12 without 11, 10, 9, all the way back, if you, if you aren't building upon that theological foundation, you go to 12 and you mess it up. And now all the practical becomes how you receive grace. You have to get to 12 and go, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Paul says that you're hostile to God. You can't want God. No one seeks after God. And in, in, in all of that, it's going, no one seeks after God. Then he talks about grace. And no one wants God. Everybody's hostile to God. And he talks about faith, right? And so he, he does that over and over again so that we get to 12, we don't go, okay, well, now here's how we make God happy. As if that's how we get saved. This is how we make God happy because we are saved. Because we trusted in him. And now he looks at us and goes, this is now possible because I'm going to make it possible. I have made it possible. I've sent the spirit so that it's possible. So now you can really change. You can really change. So Christians, just listen to me. Look at me. You can change. Don't just go, oh, I'm, I'm just a sinner forever. And all I'm going to do is talk about how I'm going to continue to struggle. You will continue to struggle. You will continue in your sin until that day, right? When he returns and takes these bodies of flesh in the sinful world and truly makes us new and takes away sin, the presence of sin. But right now, in the middle of the worst temptation of your life, in the middle of the worst struggles you have with sin, in the middle of the, the deepest fears and anxieties and worries that you have about your life and the life of the people around you, in the middle of whatever turmoil you're in, whatever financial difficulty you're in, whatever's going on with your job, whatever is going on with your family, whatever's going on with your spouse, whatever diagnosis you have, you can change. It's really possible. God makes it possible. And Paul spent 11 chapters saying, this is why it's possible. And now he's going to say, this is what is possible. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It, okay, appeal. Appeal is like, for us, it's like, okay, we're already guilty, and so we make an appeal, right? Or... Appeal is kind of an antiquated word in which we say, I'm, I'm wanting to let you know something, or I'm wanting to exhort something. And so that's the, the idea that's being, that's being used there is an urge, 
He's pressing now. I have given you ample reason to now press you and say something to you that you should hear and obey. There, there's not been a lot in the first 11 chapters which we go, okay, now we go and obey. Like here's something that we go and we do other than have faith, other than trust more deeply. And so he goes, trust, 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 trust deeply, right? More and more. He keeps going deeper, 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 deeper. Here's all the reasons why, all the reasons why. And now he says, now that you've trusted deeply, now that you've believed these things, I'm going to urge you to do something. And he says, therefore. You see that? I appeal to you, therefore. Chapter 1 to chapter 11. Therefore, <laughs> okay, Sometimes, therefore, is like the previous sentence, and, and it, it, of course, connects to the previous sentence. It is trying to say the previous passage, the previous, like the very end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Talk about now praising him, right? Who's known the mind of the Lord? To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I urge you, therefore. But you can't just go to that. You have to go, well, what is that there for? Why is he saying to do this? Why, why are all of his ways past finding out? Well, he gets for the previous 11 chapters before. All the way back to chapter 1 really is where it starts. Probably around verse 18 would be the, the idea. Verse 18 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 11 is then connected to the therefore. Because at the end uh, of the 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 previous part of that, not verse 18, but just before 18, is where he gives us the whole point of the whole book, of the whole letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Greek or the Gentile. For it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the, this is the heart of everything Paul has said. It is, it is the point that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then he talks about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And now he says, therefore, I'm going to urge something. I'm going to make an appeal to you. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to ask you a question and hope that you just come up with the right answer. I'm not going to make a suggestion. This is not Paul like, the Roman church goes, okay, well, here's the suggestion box. We'll file through them and find the ones we like. Find the ones we decide that we want to deal with. Paul doesn't make suggestions on things that are of ultimate importance. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Chapter 1 through 11 is what? About the mercies of God. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really that simple. This is the mercy of God. We don't deserve it. Look what he gave. Look what he did. We don't want it. Look what he did. He's been merciful. Do you know that mercy? Do you know deeply that mercy? Do you know how merciful he's been to you? Are you still looking at your sin and going, I'm pretty deserving of what God gave me? It actually, he hasn't given me as much as I think he probably should have at this point. If you're there, just shut your ears and repent. Because the next words for you are going to be, okay, well, here's what I do to please God. You have to be at rock bottom. You don't have to be at rock bottom because something bad happened in your life to bring you to rock bottom. 
You can take yourself to rock bottom by putting yourself directly in the face of the gospel and realizing God says that's who we are. No matter how great you are, how rich you are, no matter what you have, how many relationships, no matter how famous you are, at any given point you're at rock bottom because it's not those who are poor in money, but those who are poor in spirit. And so when God breaks someone and brings them to that point of repentance, they could be the richest person in the world and realize they're absolutely impoverished without God. Not without God as an add-on, as an extra, as an app. But with God as God, fully God, and us as truly not anymore, ever again. Acting as God in our own lives. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by all that I've said about how awful you are and how amazing God is, that's the, the ground of my urge to you. And the urge is this, the appeal is this, to present action, okay? Here we go. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. As a living death. You get that, right? That's what he says. I want you to be living death. There is a zombie apocalypse. And they are called Christians. We are death walking. Because we realize that we are completely in poverty, in spirit, and therefore it is only the mercy of God by which we stand. So it is not by any strength of our own by which we stand. It is not by anything we have done by which we stand. It is the mercy of God. Therefore, the natural right response is to completely give our lives over to him because we don't have one. We don't have a life of our own anymore. <clears throat> we have been bought with a price. We have been saved from that. It's amazing how many Christians think that they are saved so that they are now set free to live the life they want. Just a good moral one. It's so common. And what we need to realize is that God, through Christ, has not killed Christ just to forgive us, but has killed Christ and raised him from the dead in order that we may die to ourselves, to everything that we want to do. So that we will be a living sacrifice. So that everything we do will be by, through, and for Him. That we no longer live, but it is who who lives in me? It is Christ. Right? Galatians 2. <clears throat> and so... The appeal, the urge, by the mercies of God, because he's been so merciful, how could I now say he's been this merciful, so I'm going to give him part of my time? God has been so merciful in 
killing his son in order to give him his wrath that we deserve rather than giving it to us. He's been so merciful that I am going to go to church and read my Bible and then have my stuff. He's calling for a radical reorganization. The action that we have is the deactivation of ourselves. I was telling someone this story, uh, or some of you, maybe it was the other night. Um, when I was really young, I don't remember how old, you know, six, let's say, uh, I was at our big family Christmas thing. So, I mean, there's like, there's like 50 people there. It's all aunts and uncles and grandparents and just all of us grandkids and great-grandkids and just a huge family thing. It's just, it was just a wonderful event every year. And somebody made the horrid mistake. It's always an aunt or uncle who does these dumb things because parents are smarter than this. But somebody bought me a whistle. <laughs> it's the long whistle that has the little, right? Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen those. So it's Christmas Eve. The kids open their presents first. We all got some stuff from aunts and uncles. And I got a whole bunch of really great stuff and a whistle. Guess what I played with? While, while, while we leave the room so all the adults can talk and have their adult conversations and adult jokes and adult goofy gifts and all the adult things that happen, which, of course, I wasn't a part of, but guess what was a part of their party? My whistle. And I'm walking around. I'm just like, hey, this is great. And all the kids are never, I mean, the kids, how do, kids don't get annoyed by anything. Except not getting their way. Am I right? They don't get annoyed by anything. After a while, don't you just hate singing that same song over and over again? Uh, that silly, like, and, and it gets louder and louder. And there's four of them going at the same time in my van. And we can't drown it out. I'm not allowed to put in earplugs as the driver. I mean, you just, what are you going to do? It took one day. And guess who couldn't find their whistle? It was, it was weeks that went by, and I'm going, Mom and Dad, I can't find my whistle anywhere. And they're like, man, that's a real bummer. You loved that whistle. You loved it. Ugh, we're so sorry. Maybe we can get another one at the store. Well, you sure, you know, well, we'll look and we'll, you know. And then, of course, a couple more weeks went by, and I just forgot about it until I got older and realized, oh, no. All of these years, I thought I lost my whistle and my parents took it and threw it away because <laughs> it was enough. And as a parent, I urge you, aunts and uncles, don't buy whistles unless you want your brothers and sisters because of their children to hate you. Okay. We are walking around annoying the world with our lives, with our whistle, with our way, with our stuff, with our will. And through Christ, God plucks that stupid whistle out of your mouth and throws it away and gives you, he says, your mouth is made for something else. 
and now I've redeemed it for myself. Use it to speak my words. Encourage one another. Speak words of love and forgiveness and grace. Speak the gospel. God takes our hands that are firmly attached to the Xbox. And so, you know, my kids go to bed and their hands are like this, right? They're all cramped because they've got a Charlie horse in every muscle in their fingers and they love it, right? They just like, oh, look at all these calluses on my hands. <laughs> I killed all those things. <clears throat> and, 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 you know, and maybe it's not that, you know, maybe it's whatever your hobby is, whatever your free time is for. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying throw all those things away. Although for some people, I remember hearing a pastor once say that, um, a guy in his church had decided I am, uh, addicted to games. And at the time it was computer games. You know, we didn't have, um, the, the great tech stuff that you can get now for your TV and all. And, and he brought the pastor just a box full of Sims, you know, you know I'm talking about Sims, right? These worlds that you build or whatever. Um, and, and it just, he brought the pastor's box and he said, I can't be accountable for having these in my house because I will put them in my computer and I will play until I've wasted my life away. And some of you do need to do that. And it may not be games, it may be something else. It may be something inherently sinful. It may be something that can be fine. It may be something that can be fine to do. My kids have an Xbox. But we have to be parents that provide the boundaries between idolatry and fun, right? Because if we allow it to become that idolatry, then, then what kind of parents are we? And so you, if you are an adult, you need to go, if you know Christ, if you have been saved by the mercies of God, you have to realize that God is saying, therefore, the right thing to do, because what else would you do, is give yourself completely as a sacrifice. Holy. Without keeping something back. The, the only option is this, is that you could like literally cut off your arm and go, I'm going to keep that part for myself. How well will that arm work? It's not going to work very well. It's going to start to stink and decay and eventually you'll go, well, at least I can use this bone as a, you know, something as a hammer or whatever. It's, it's completely worthless unless it's connected. And we, if we are connected to Christ, have no other way of living but with our bodies presented as living sacrifices, completely given, alive, alive from the dead through Christ and therefore to be used fully by Christ. And so he says, says it this way, here's the action because of the mercies of God to present your body's living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, to now give your body fully is holy and acceptable. Not because your body's so great. Am I right? There's no amens. Come on, people. Right? It's not because our, our bodies are so great. And even if they are great, they aren't great for very long. 
were playing a game last night with the kids, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, and so we were playing this game, and the question came up, what age would you want to be if you could be one age forever? Nobody said 85. Nobody said 35, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, like, I was going, okay, at what age was I in the best shape and felt the best and didn't have, you know, whatever, and, and so you, you try to find that time. We don't, we don't have necessarily the greatest bodies, and even if they are great, they aren't going to be great for long, but they become holy and acceptable to God as a sacrifice. In every other way, they're not holy and acceptable. You, you got to get that. By faith, the only way for our bodies to be holy and acceptable is to be giving them over as living sacrifices. So they are, they are a sacrifice fully. And so they are completely dedicated as the sacrifice, which means when you, when you give a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you know, you kill the animal and for the forgiveness of sins, which points to Christ. And so it's, it's done. The animal doesn't go, all right, I was the sacrifice. Now go take me out in the pasture and let me eat some grass. Animals don't do that, right? At least not in the real world, in the, maybe in the movies. When, we, when something is killed, it's done. And when God makes us done, he makes us living sacrifices. He doesn't say, now... Now you know Jesus, hurry up and kill yourself so you can be with him forever. It's not that crazy of an idea, and that's why cults adopt it. Because I get away from this life. Every once in a while, when in the middle of something really bad that's going on in our family or in our marriage or in our individual lives, usually has something to do with health, right? With, it, with Molly and I look at each other and go, it'd be nice, like... If, uh, you know, Jesus came back today, just ended all this. Because I got all these worries and concerns and things I'm just dealing with. It'd be nice to just kind of, uh, I can breathe again. But instead, I'm still here and he's not come back. And here we go another day, another week, another year for crying out loud. But with God, we have this holy and acceptable sacrifice he calls it your spiritual worship. Isn't that great? The word worship, if you find the word worship in the Old Testament, the word that is most commonly used for worship is the word prostrate, to fall on your face. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he doesn't go, wow, let me just check out all the details of your robe. Oh my goodness. Is, are, the, is that, are those gems real, you know? Is that bedazzler? How'd you do that? That's not what you do when you see God. You fall on your face. You, you aren't up and active. You are down, humbled, in, in an awe and reverence of God. And so, the life of a Christian based upon his mercy, is, is a life of worship. We worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by living, not dying, dying to ourself, but living in Christ, 
living death, <laughs> this is just a great picture here, 24-7, you are walking dead person, dead to yourself, but alive to Christ. Which means everything about your sinfulness has been retooled to make you holy and acceptable. Not because we no longer sin, but because we are now completely made right in Christ with God so that we can obey. We can. So the next time you go, I just can't do it, smack yourself in the face before I or somebody else smacks you, right? Because we can. We can obey. It doesn't mean that we will obey. It doesn't mean that it will be easy to obey. But we can, and here's how. Walk upright and live your life as if you are prostrate on the ground in the presence of God all the time. It, it, it's, an, it's an odd picture, but it's the only picture. It is the picture of the Christian life here. Your throat is cut so that you would bleed out on the altar as a sacrifice, and yet you are walking around filled with life. It's just not yours. And I know my own heart, and I know all of you well enough to know that everyone in this room is struggling to be that. And everyone in every room is struggling to be that. That we know Christ, but you have to be urged by the apostle or by the pastor or by the friend. You have to be given an appeal. Present yourself. You wake up in the morning and what should you do? Well, first I make coffee, and then I take a shower, and then I do, and then, and then, and then, and eventually I'm driving in my car somewhere, and I go, oh, God, right? Moody radio. And then you go, oh, I got God in my life now. I, I can't say Caleb, because there's no love in Caleb. I'm just messing with you, okay? Here, so here, here's the point. You should wake up, when you wake up in the morning, how many of you feel wide awake and alive, and how many of you feel... Yeah, yeah. Listen, Molly is my snooze button. And this morning I got up at the last possible minute because I felt like death. And in the morning I shouldn't go, oh, I wish, uh, you know, I, I, I know, I know what it means to have a good night's sleep and you wake up in the morning and you have energy. I know that we, we all have days like that. And some of you have more days like that than others. And, and, you know, some of us are counting on one hand. I've had a couple days like that in the last three years and we are to wake up in the morning and no matter how much energy we have and no, no matter how much get up and go is is in our minds we are to wake up and go i i need to hurry up and kill myself i gotta do it now because it's gonna take a second for you to start living your life there's a reason when people talk about reading the bible daily having a daily quiet time, prayer time, devotional time. There's a reason why in Scripture we see Jesus do it early in the morning and we see, you know, throughout history, you, you, you read these books and they're just like impossible standards, right? This great preacher who used to get up and he'd say, well, I've got more to do today, so I have to pray for three hours rather than two hours. And you're like, why? You're like, okay, wait, he, he's a monk, what else is he going to do? He's going to scrub the grout. You know what I'm saying? Or go make beer or something or whatever monks do. Okay, so here's my point. If you don't wake up in the morning and kill yourself, you will live for yourself. 
How many of you catch yourself in the day going, oh, I've got, what time is it? And I'm, I, I've, st- I've just now thought about God for the first time. You have to make a plan to wake up and die or you will wake up and live for something else and then it's a wasted day. And you're going to be in the middle and you're going to go, oh, and then you're going to feel guilty. And you're going to spend all of your prayer time relieving your guilt rather than praying people into the kingdom. You're going to be praying and relieving your guilt rather than praying for the lost, praying for the hurting, praying for the sick, praying for your friends. You've got all these people you need to be praying for and you know it. But you spend so much time in prayer trying to get yourself back to neutral. Because there's all this sin and there's all this decay in your life because you're not waking up and dying first. And so for this year, and it shouldn't be for this year, but it's just an extra reminder. As we start a year, start with wake up and die. It is an action you take to present yourself. In Christmas, we, we gave presents right we presented something to our kids and they take it and they open it and they go oh great i love underwear right because that's what everybody gets for christmas um we told our kids no more underwear for christmas those will last another year no that's not what we said to present yourself is to say this is the gift not because you're a great gift to god but because that is worship that is worship. It's to say, I'm now yours. Everything of mine is gone. I've got this agenda today because I, I, I work and that's a gift that you've given me. I have a family and I've got an agenda for them because that's a gift you've given me. But if any of those parts of the agenda aren't working, rearrange them, make them work. You know that the most, the, the, the most godly part of your day is the interruptions. Because you're going to make all these dumb plans and then God's going to throw something in there and you're going to freak out and go, oh no, there's this thing in the middle of my day. And God's going, I'm, that's the only one that you can explain by me. Everything else is you. And yet all your stuff is what makes you happy and the one interruption is the one that you're throwing up your hands about. We've got it all backwards. That's just verse one. So, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the foundation. That's the core. That's the reason. Start with the mercies of God. How great has God been to me? How much of this has all been given by him? Well, life, breath, and everything. Salvation in Christ. It's all been given by him. Anything good comes from the Lord, it says in Scripture. Everything's from him. So, what do we do? We present our bodies. Our bodies. You don't just say, I I present myself to you. Kind of a spiritual, I I give myself to you, God. Knock it off and give your body. Get on your face when you wake up and say, it's yours. This is is yours. Use it. Make me awake to all the stuff I see around me. Make me the guy who can react. Make me the woman who can feel what they feel and to respond. How many people have you seen and you're looking around going, would somebody notice my pain? Would somebody notice my hurt? Would somebody notice my problem? Would somebody, would somebody care? Would somebody give me a thank you for that thing that I did? Would somebody give me a, you know, a high five for how awesome I am? How many of you are looking at the people around you going, who's hurt? Who's in pain? Who's suffering? 
Who's weak? Who needs a hug? Who needs a high five? Who needs some encouragement? Who needs some correction? Who needs some what? Just who needs it? How many of you have already put yourself on the altar so that you're not walking around needy? Codependent on the world to take care of you and to make you feel like you have some value. Your value is in Christ. So you wake up in the morning and you die and go, by his mercy, it's all Christ. My value is, is that I belong to him. I am now precious, holy, acceptable. As I give my body over and now I go and just God spend me. I know sleep's coming, so I'm going to wear myself out because you're going to spend it because it's all yours. So that is our worship. And then he says this in verse two, do not be conformed to this world. Well, if we if we're presenting our bodies, living sacrifices, we won't be conformed, right? Isn't that the opposite of what it means to be conformed? is to give our bodies the sacrifices, to die to ourselves and to be alive only to what Christ, what God desires, to be attuned into the Holy Spirit so that we will do God's will. So then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And isn't that exactly what we need? If we're going to present our bodies as living sacrifices, doesn't it start with your mind? I have to have a change of mind so that I will make a plan before I go to bed that I'm going to wake up and kill myself so that I can now live for Christ. Isn't that exactly what needs to happen? So we need to be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. How do you have your mind renewed? Molly and I just had a conversation about this. It, it was a conversation, and, and the question that one of us had was, how? how, how do I, I know this is the right thing to do. The example would be present your bodies as living sacrifices, as the, the one big, all-encompassing example. But how do I do that? How do I do it? And that's a good question, and Paul gives you the answer. By not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do you get your mind transformed? Well, for Paul, it is, did you read the first 11 chapters? He didn't write them in chapters, but you know what I'm saying. Have you read my letters so far? That's it. You read and you trust in the mercies of God. You see the mercies and you so lay yourself upon them. That's all you've got. Just, just, it's his mercies. I live and breathe by his mercies. Therefore, you are not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of the mind so that the body follows what the mind thinks. If you go, why am I not, why am I not happy? Why am I not living for God? Why am I not satisfied with God? Why do I feel like so little of my life is actually worship? Why? Because your mind is not renewed. So the action must come. What, what, what works on my mind? If I want to renew my mind so that I can have a certain job, what do I do? Go to school, read some books, right? I study. I, I, I learn something so that I have the ability. I have, you know, my, my wife gets a new cell phone and she goes, I'm going to read the manual. Who does that? 
she's not in the room to defend herself. But I, I, she's never had something where she goes, oh, this is mine. I, I'm just going to figure it out intuitively by messing around with it. That's what I do, you know, until somebody then goes, well, you know, you can do this. And I go, oh, okay, good. I'll just kind of learn along the way. She sits down with that little book that nobody reads. The only person in the world who actually breaks the binding on the little manual that you get with your phone. So she's reading this thing, and oh, here's what you do. And it's like, that seems so simple. But how many of us would do that? I've sometimes used something for years, and I go, I know I had a manual for that somewhere. It probably says it. We were playing a game, some of us at the temple's house. And we were like, what do we do? Well, where's the manual? And we couldn't find the manual, so what did we do? Those of us who were there. We Googled it on our phones, and we found a PDF of the game instructions. Fancy that. You read and figure it out. Transform the way we played the game, in which the guys won. Amen. Amen. The Bible says the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ the head of the church, which means we are to win the games. It's just the Bible, okay? I'm, okay, just forget it. Don't, please don't quote me. I don't want to get hurt by anybody. All right. Yeah, yeah. That, I didn't turn off the switch on that one, did I, Scott? Um, <laughs> if this is on video, that would be on YouTube. All right, so here we go. Let's finish this up because this, uh, uh, this is just wrapping up his, his basic point here. And then the rest of the practical part of Romans, now this is the foundation. The foundation of the gospel is the foundation for the practical, or otherwise it becomes the law by which we try to make God happy rather than do because he's already happy. Now we're learning what those things are that we do. And what we do is, is we present our bodies living sacrifices. And that's only possible if our minds are renewed so that we not only know we need to do that, but we know how to do that. And so what we need to do is go back to the manual and read it. Because it tells us who we are. Isn't that exactly what Paul does in Romans? You're a sinner. You don't seek God. You're hostile to God. You know, there's all these things. This is who you are. And then it says, here's who God is. And then you realize we're a mess, but he's merciful. And so now my mind is renewed. I understand his mercy. I'm, I'm being transformed rather than conformed to the world in my mind. And so now I am thinking differently and my thinking leads to action. And so my action is going to be to do whatever it takes to now present my body as a living sacrifice. And in being transformed in our minds... What ends up happening is, the end of verse 2, that by testing, is testing like having a thought? It, when my kids do tests in school, you get, that's labs, right? You have a lab thing, and so you go and you do some tests, and you, you take the pH paper, and you put it on some, I don't know, fondue or cheese or water or whatever. And so you put it on there and you go, oh, it turned such and such a color. I'm going to write that down as the answer to number four. You're doing a test. And so what Paul says is, is that as we're not conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind, we test 
let's read it the way he says it, that by testing, it's a part of the renewal process, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, to make this clear, he's not saying this is the process by which you find out what college to go to or whether or not I should let my 15-year-old daughter have a driver's permit. Okay, you know, this, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying so that you can find that, uh, that thing, find out what to do about that thing that's not given explicitly in Scripture. What he's saying, uh, I, I, I'm, I believe is pretty clear, is generally speaking, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, that we will know that being a living sacrifice, for example, is the will of God. What we need is less prayer about should I do this or that and more presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. I'm not saying you don't pray as much. But in Christianity, there's this, there's this, I pray about everything. Like I pray, you know, is this the right way? Is this the right thing? Is this, and I'm not saying we don't pray about everything. I'm just saying that the focus of our prayer on everything is different in that the most important thing that I do to find out how or what to do that is not explicitly given in scripture is to present myself as a living sacrifice and being renewed in my mind. If you, if you want to know that thing, don't seek out that thing. Don't seek out some I'm going to read scripture and hope that there's something there that sounds enough like that thing that I feel like God's saying that. We don't, we don't find that in scripture as an example of how we find God's will. What we do is give ourselves fully to God. And then the rest of those things tend to come much more naturally. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm telling you, it's the easiest thing to do is to, is to make Christianity into this spiritualism by which we have the divining rod of praying and having a fuzzy feeling. And what this is saying clearly is, you renew your mind, which means you pour into it the things that will change your mind from all of your stupid sinful thoughts to all of God's holy and acceptable thoughts, mainly that we are to give our bodies completely to him for his use in full, and to take our agenda and just say, wipe it clean. And God can reorganize all of that. Some of you are on a career path and are, are, are thinking about going and doing something or a job or whatever. And maybe you need to say, because you've never asked yourself, should I go and be a missionary somewhere around the world? Some of you have not even asked yourself that question. And me even saying that just seems odd. And the reason it seems odd is because you don't have a renewed mind. It's the same reason I do this, that in my own life. Every once in a while, I, try to, I, I just notice myself going, why is everybody else asking that question and I'm not? We went to an adoption conference a couple months ago, and everybody's like, so are you guys adopting? And we were like, man, we haven't thought about adoption in 10 years. I just, we were there for other purposes, and that's fine. But it just was like, should we even think about that? So we started thinking about that. What would that mean? What, how would we do that? What, what would we, how would we pay for that? How would we, you know, whatever else it is. And so it takes, it takes something to come into our system in order to take over the system so that we will. And so I'm just going to close this way.
Because I know we're out of time. Long out of time. Here we go. It's not funny. We're not over time. I'm going to keep preaching now because you're laughing at me. Um, here's the how, okay? Here's the how. If we're going to do this, and, and what I would say, the, the word for transformed here is the same word that's used in the transfiguration of Christ. Jesus is seen as one way, but then he shows himself more fully. It shows himself as glorious. It's the same word. It doesn't mean that we're transformed into this glorious, you know, glowing thing or something. It's just to show that it's as dramatic, okay? It's that dramatic. And so what we are doing is we are, we are changing our thinking to otherworldly thinking rather than worldly thinking. You live in the world and you have your ways in the world. We need, to, we need our minds transformed so that we are now doing otherworldly thinking. We're thinking about how everything matters in eternity, not how everything matters in time. Once you do that, now you go, oh, well, how I spend my money on this burger actually has an eternal lasting effect of some sort. Which is why John Piper says, if you can't figure out how to eat pizza and drink Pepsi to the glory of God, maybe you shouldn't do it until you figure out how you can do it. Now, I know you can do it figured out how. I, I think you can. I think obviously you can. But the point is, that should be a part of what we're thinking. How many of you are asking yourself that question? How does this glorify God? How does buying this or doing this or saying this or thinking this, how do those things glorify God? That's a part of the transformation process. So here's how we do it. Not just 2012, here's your New Year's resolutions, but this is where we are. This is how, this is where God put us on, on January 1st, how awesome is that? That God puts us there. And here's just a couple of practical things built upon what Paul has given that I think will not only transform our mind, but once our minds are transformed, we're now presenting our bodies, living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, and we're living a life fully worshiping him and not something else. Commit to scripture. Concentrate. Concentrate. I say that not because I'm trying to add something to scripture, but I'm simply saying this. Uh, and here, the example is this. My kids this morning started their yearly Bible reading plan that we decided to do. We got it uh, from a, a theologian that I know. And he has, a, he has a morning and an evening. And so you wake up in the morning and then there's, a, there's a, a short passage. It was, what, seven verses today or something like that, six verses. And then, and then there's like one question or one little thing to do to sort of drive it home. And then there's, there's something in the evening. The morning is Old Testament. The evening is New Testament. And so he's, it, it's every day for the whole year. I printed it out. It's like a 106-page document. So I was like, I'm not going to print this out for each of you kids. I'm going to have one copy on the fridge. And then you guys all read that. And then I give them each a journal. And they're journaling in that. And I said, part of what we want you to do is instead of going, how much of the Bible can you read this year, is I want you to know what you've read. I want you to know what you've read. So I'm, we're focusing in my house on scripture concentrate, that, that we would get the depth more than the breadth, that we're not trying to read through the Bible in a year, although that's a great thing to do. I've done that before. I, if you want to do that this year, I encourage you. I've got Bible reading plans out there. It'll show you how to do that, uh, you know, and give you a plan. I love that kind of plan. We've decided this year to do it this way, and I think it's going to be helpful for our family to do it in a concentrated way to make sure that we're not missing what we're reading. I don't, if you're going to read the Bible through in a year, that's great. But to read it and not understand, it's no good. So do it if you can do it and understand it. You hear what I'm saying? Don't just do it so you can say, I did it. <laughs> that's, that's wrong. Okay, that's bad. Commit to Scripture. Concentrate. Second, battle with God's promises. Battle with God's promises. 
What has God promised to do? What has he said that he's going to do? What has he told us to do and that he will bless? Do those things. Have those things in your mind. This is why we meditate on scripture, memorize scripture, is so that we have something to battle with. You know what I'm saying? The armor of God, Ephesians 6. What is the, what is the sword? The word. You, you, Satan comes at you, you can hack him to pieces because you have the word. It doesn't mean, well, what I'm going to do is carry my Bible more with me. No, you need to carry your Bible more with you so that it's a part of the battle. And then last, I'll just say this, do it together. We're doing this as a family. The adults, the kids, we're all doing the same thing. Now, we may do other things. We're gonna, we've already talked about a couple other things we want to do so that you know, either more scripture or we have this, uh, well, all of it's more scripture, but it's just how we're presenting it. And so we're, we're doing it together as a family. It's accountability. We have each other to you know, remind each other. We actually have a sheet on the fridge in which they all initial it once they've done the morning and then once they've done the evening. And it's, we're gonna, we have a plan so that we're doing it together. It'll help us to stick with it. Um, I know other people who are doing similar things. And so we're, we're, we're talking to each other as a church. You, you know, we could say we're going to all do one Bible reading plan for the next year. We're, we haven't done that, but that's something you can do. You can do it in a small group. Just grab another couple in the church and say, hey, let's, we should read this so that when we come together every week. We've been reading the same stuff. And we can say, how have you been liking Leviticus? Hasn't it been eye-opening? Because it points to Christ. Because he's fulfilled all these things. Did you realize that when you're reading it? And we can be encouraging to each other. Do it together. Don't just have your thing to do alone and then you fail to do it and go, oh, well, I'll try again next year. Do it. Do it together. Find someone to do it with. We're closing prayer. Would you stand with me? I just gave you a couple practical things, but remember at the heart of those things, at the heart of those things, or whatever else it is you use as, as a tool, they're all there for one reason. To have a renewed mind that leads you to a sacrificed body that leads you to spiritual worship 24-7. So that whether you're awake or asleep or whether you're eating or drinking or whether you're hanging out with friends, you're using your mouth or you're being quiet, whether you're writing or reading or watching, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to do these things. They are not things that we can do in our own strength. They are things that you give us the strength to do. You've given us the call to do it. You've given us the plea to do it, the urge to do it. And now, God, help us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you as our spiritual act of worship. And help us to not be conformed to this world, to their way of thinking, to the patterns of their way of life. Help us be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we will think differently. You have given us a word. We are a people of a book. You have given us a way to have our minds transformed. As we sit under the preaching of the word and of the gospel, it is a way of having our minds transformed if we are engaged and listening and waiting to hear from you. You will transform our minds so that we can conform our bodies as sacrifices alive to you. Help us to see great growth in each other. And in our own lives this year, as we are humbled and broken and prostrate before you in worship, giving ourselves to you fully, wholly, completely because of your great mercies. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you and happy new year.